For people who are listening who are interested interested in designing a multi-location life, what are your top three tips for them? Top three tips. Uh, I would say first, you know, travel. So, you know, travel to multiple locations so you can see where where do you love, what places you love. So that's the first thing. Uh, build a network. So it's not just, you know, great to just travel to these places and stay isolated in, you know, tourist attractions or like in, you know, fancy hotels. For me, it's, you know, getting to know the local people, connecting with them and, you know, building that relationship. This, you know, whether you're there or you've moved on, you, you maintain that uh, the relationship. You're listening to the Soul Career Podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from people who've taken a risk to discover careers that fill them with purpose and make them come alive. I'm your host, Lysandra Ricketts. Now for the episode. In the guest chair today, I have Audra Gordon, who was born in the Caribbean in St. Vincent and then moved to America when she was 13 years old and became a U.S. citizen and then up and moved to Hong Kong with detours through Ghana and London. So today we're going to talk about how to design a multi-location career. What's also interesting about Audra is that she recently left her full-time career in banking to become an entrepreneur in fashion. So we're going to talk about how she structured her career around this theme of flexibility and freedom and multiple locations. So Audra, welcome to the Soul Career Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lysandra. Thank you. Awesome. We're so happy to have you on. So let's start with what you're doing right now in your career today. Sure. Hi, I have launched a resort wear brand uh, called Beam Bold. It's a vibrant resort wear brand for women and girls. The brand focuses on uh, reducing textile waste and size inclusion. Yes, and you're wearing it right now and the colors yes, are just yeah. amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so uh, you are a fashion entrepreneur, but you're also a consultant. So tell us about that part of your career. Sure. So I'm also doing a bit of compliance consulting and financial services. So obviously I had moved over to fashion full time, but due to COVID and I had to take on uh, some more um, consulting work. Yes. And that is the reality, right? Like uh, we don't want to sugarcoat entrepreneurship at Soul Career. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. And the pandemic, a lot of entrepreneurs took on consulting work. So I want to hear it all entrepreneurship plus consulting plus all these countries you've lived in and that you've touched over the course of your career. So tell me, Audra, do you love what you're doing right now? Yes or no? And why? Yes, I absolutely love what I'm doing. I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I get to, you know, solve a lot of my customers' issues, whether, you know, they have a hard time finding their size or their length, but it also allows me to merge all of the, the things I'm passionate about. So I love travel, I love fashion, and I'm really in love with the African continent and being able to merge all three areas that I really love is what I'm doing right now. So I'm very, very grateful that I'm able to do this as a career. So how do you merge all three? Like, how are you um, involved with the African continent and how do you and do the travel and all of that stuff through your business? Sure. So I started traveling in Africa in 2010. 
Uh, so it's been a decade of me traveling across the continent. I fell in love with the continent. Uh, in 2014, I went to Ghana and I did an internship there while I was doing my MBA and then has traveled throughout the continent uh, since then. And um, when I learned that so much textile waste is being dumped in the African continent from the West, I felt like I needed to do something about it. So this is why I decided to launch a, you know, a ready to wear brand that's, you know, that's made, uh, made to order instead of mass producing where the pieces end up in the landfills. I felt like, you know, let me focus on this, on reducing waste and encouraging my customers to buy less and buy better quality, quality products that are made to last and instead of having inventory that gets dumped into the African continent. So this is why I've decided to launch the brand. Awesome. And you're actually based in Hong Kong right now. So how do you do all of that from Hong Kong? <laughs> sure. So production is in China. I've been in Hong Kong the last nine, for the last nine years, and my production is in China. Um, so I'm able to, well, I was able to cross the border. Um, it's just an hour and a half to the factory uh, from where I am in, in Hong Kong. Uh, but since COVID, I haven't been able to cross. It's been about a year that I haven't been able to go in. But because of my network on the ground, I'm, I'm able to continue with the brand and get things done while I'm still in Hong Kong. So um, shipping through the rest of the world is very, very great from Hong Kong. It's not an issue in terms of logistics from Hong Kong. So, um, so it's a really great hub to be at the moment. Okay, so let me try to understand your business model. So basically, you source fabrics in Africa and you import it into China where your factory is and then the finished project product goes to Hong Kong and you ship it around the world from Hong Kong. Is that right? Mm -hmm. No, not exactly. <laughs> okay. So, so the brand idea was born in Africa uh, by, you know, while I was traveling, I met a girl who said to me, I own nothing black. And our conversation about our love for color really inspired the brand. But my production is done in China. The fabric is sourced in China because yeah. it's silk cotton. So I would have loved to source the fabric from Africa, but because silk cotton is not produced on the continent, I had to get it done in China. So this is why, um, you know, like I looked at options to switch production there but I, I I don't find I haven't been able to find another option as yet so production is in China then it gets um, shipped to Hong Kong and then I will repackage and ship around the world okay interesting so how do you address this issue of textile waste in in Ghana then like or in Africa sorry how what are your thoughts around how you address that thing that impacted you so much when you live there sure so, um, so what I'm doing, so instead, a lot of brands are producing way too much. Obviously, it's cheaper to produce a larger quantity and then you sell some of it, at, you know, at a full price and then you discount some of it. But a lot of people don't realize a lot of the dead stock, but also clothing that you donate uh, gets sold in bales and end up in the landfills of Africa. So about 40% of what, um, what's sent there just it's just not clothes just not useful at all so it just gets burnt in a landfill so again it's affecting the lives of the people who are living there ghana has one of the largest um you know largest um uh, secondhand um markets in in west Af well probably in in all of africa uh, but a lot of the, the clothing gets sent there and then it gets um, dispersed around the, across the continent. So my goal is to encourage you know, my customers to buy less, 
buy pieces that actually fit, that's the correct length, correct size, and pieces that can be adjustable. So I, I make, I design with extra seam allowance so that all of the pieces can be adjusted. So this is, you know, one way of uh, reducing waste and um, having the pieces last for a long time. Yeah, so that if you get wider or narrower, you can adjust the pieces with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, and then another question I had on your business is, so your factory is in China, you are in Hong Kong, you would cross over, it's only an hour and a half to your factory from where you are. So how did you develop relationships in China? Because a lot of people on this side of the world have dreams of finding great suppliers at low prices in China for especially a fashion brand. So how did you as an individual solo entrepreneur do it because it's right. not that easy. <laughs> right. It's all about connections. Again, I talk to random strangers every day. So where my office is now in Shamshi Po here in Hong Kong is the garment district here. So I was just, you know, researching fabric and just going just to feel the different textures. And I met a lady and, you know, I said to her, I'm looking for, for a supplier. Uh, and uh, she gave me a few contacts. I went into China. I met a guy who was running a factory and he said, oh, where are you from? And I said, I'm from the Caribbean. He said, I lived in the Caribbean. I set up a denim factory in Haiti 30 years ago. And this is how we totally connected. And obviously he spoke English because he's Hong Kong Chinese. And this is how it started. So I started with him, then other referrals. I worked with a few other factories um, based on referrals that I got from my network. So again, just not, don't be afraid. Just get on the train, go there and, you know, start building your network. Wow. Right. That's exactly the power of your network, the power of making connections. And that's advice that I give to entrepreneurs that I coach during the pandemic that when the chips are down, it's going to be the strength of your network that really helps you to recover from that. Um, you can't just go into a cave and in, withdraw into a hole. You have to be out there trying and meeting people and doing things. And that's actually exactly how we met. You just randomly reached out to me on LinkedIn. And I was like, who is this amazing, fabulous woman that lives in Hong Kong, has a banking background, doing amazing things in fashion. And what's really funny, I have to comment on this, is that we both have a bird of paradise plant in our backgrounds <laughs> against yes. a gray wall. So yes, it looks like connection. <laughs> Yeah. So it looks like my plant is in hanging over in your office, which is really funny. <laughs> okay. So in terms of the split between in terms of time, your time split between your venture and your consulting practice, what's the split right now today in 2021? Right. So I would say about 10% is consulting and 90% is the brand. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I felt, I felt um, once I had enough to cover my expenses, uh, I felt like that gives me enough, you know, to focus my attention on the brand. Because again, I, I wanted to, you know, to have this full time, but because, you know, I, I have overhead, I have expenses that need to cover. And I just felt like I just need something that's enough and not where it takes away too much attention because obviously the brand is just me by myself working on it at the moment. So I felt like I needed to, to, to put a lot of attention there. Okay. And then in terms of income split now, which is often uh -huh. quite different, what's the right. percentage <laughs> of your income that comes uh -huh. from the consulting versus the business? Well, I haven't paid myself from the business. I've been just using the consulting income 
just to keep things going and all of the 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 um, revenue that I get from the business goes back into the business so right now all of the the, the income that I use like day-to-day -day expenses come from consulting and everything else goes back into the business and that's real that's real a lot of entrepreneurs fund their businesses from consulting or from a nine-to-five or you know you have to start where you can to fund the business and then as the business grows then you can transition full-time to it being your single source of income but that's often different difficult in the beginning. For me personally, I got investors so that I could devote my time to the business, but that was my second option to do consulting work to, to fund the business. Okay, so now let's talk about your multi-location life from the Caribbean <laughs> through the US to London to Africa to Hong Kong to China back to Hong Kong. So tell us, for, let's start in the beginning. Where were you born? What happened next? How did you end up in Hong Kong? Okay, so I was born in St. Vincent, uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and I moved to New York at 13. Uh, so I grew up in Brooklyn, where most you know Caribbean people of Caribbean descent grew up in uh, in Brooklyn. And then uh, in 2011, I reached out to a random guy on LinkedIn, same as I reached out to you, <laughs> and I sent him you know a note. He was working you know in banking in Hong Kong at the time, and I just sent him a note and said, oh, "I would love to chat with you about how you transitioned from New York to Hong Kong." And that con conversation inspired me to apply for a role to lead an international team in banking here. And I had one phone interview, and I was offered the job to move to Hong Kong. So again, I had, I had traveled quite a bit of Africa, a bit of Europe, a bit of South America, but never ever Asia. And once I had an offer to move here, I packed up my entire life and showed up here in 2011 and I never looked back. So Hong Kong became home, but I had already been traveling around the world. Now I've done 76 countries around the world, but my heart is in Africa. I've now done 26 countries in Africa. My passion is the continent, economic development of the continent. And that's what kept me going back. So, you know, left banking and did my MBA full time and then decided to go to Ghana to do an internship. Again, by reaching out to a random lady I saw on the TV, on Afri I saw her on African Voices on CNN, and I reached out to her, and this is how I ended up in Ghana. I booked a one-way flight to Ghana, and I didn't look back. <laughs> and that was from Hong Kong? Yes, yes, okay. yes. So I, I spent the summer in Ghana, and I really loved it. And then since then, I go back to Ghana every year. 2018, the year I launched the brand, was the only year I didn't make it back to Ghana. But, you know, I've been traveling across the African continent since then. And in 23 years ago, I spent six months, and I traveled the entire West Africa by road solo. And that was life-changing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So there is so much to unpack in what you just described. Okay. So you moved to Brooklyn when you were 13, you said, right? Yes. And yes. then tell me about your career in New York before you moved to Hong Kong. What did you okay. end up doing? Where did you go to college? And then how did you get, how did you get into banking in the first place? Okay. So I actually started off as a teller in banking and worked my way up to VP level in banking. What? So, <laughs> yes, I, well, I started off in retail sales um, while I was in high school. So I worked for a few brands like Kenneth Cole, Express, Our Pastel. So again, after school, I will go into the shops, but I really enjoyed it. Like I love the fabric, I love all of that. And, but everyone make you feel like fashion is not a real career. You need to do something serious, right? You need to be a banker, you need to be a lawyer. There has to be something that has you know a, you know potential um uh income stream and you know so again you, you just get misguided that you know anything in the
arts is not real, a real career. Right. And then I, I said, okay, let me start off in banking. So then I, I got a job at uh, Chase Bank as a teller. And while I was still doing my undergrad, so I started off at Utica College of Syracuse and I came back to New York City and I finished my undergrad at Brooklyn College. So while I was going to school, I, I worked at the bank in the day. I worked at uh, in the shops on the weekend and then I, I, uh, I went to school at night. So <laughs> this is how I finished my undergrad. <laughs> right. And, yeah. So, oh my gosh. So who, so you knew from very young that you wanted to be around fashion and retail yes. and brands, but mm -hmm. you got um, guidance that that is not a money-making career. You need to go into banking. So who told you, who talked you out of being in brands yeah, and retail? I don't remember who was the person that said this is not it, but I just know the consensus was, you know, well, I, my grandmother was a seamstress um, back in the Caribbean. So she sewed for the entire community from school uniforms to the wedding dresses to every type of fashion my grandmother sew. So I grew up with that. My mom was a department store manager, you know, so again, so a lot of people in my family worked in textile, but again, it was, there wasn't much much um i guess career path i guess you, you didn't have the exposure to all the career paths in banking i mean in, in fashion so this is why i felt like okay banking was a safe career and I, I i started off as a teller and i did i started doing pretty well pretty quickly and client i started connecting with clients and then again started getting my license so i thinking okay what else do i need to do to move up in in banking but i still kept my job on the weekends in the fashion in in the shops because i really enjoyed it right so and this is a really important point because talented young professionals need to see upward mobility and a growth trajectory for their careers. So in order to attract the attention of talented professionals, we have to be able to see a path for them to generate wealth for themselves as well. And you saw that path in banking. So what bank, you joined Chase, but you ended yes. up at HSBC, which is a yes. very global international bank, which is based in Hong Kong, I think, or has huge operations in Hong Kong. So tell mm -hmm. me about that shift that you made from Chase to HSBC. Yes. So HSBC actually recruited me after my undergrad. So I had applied for the management training program, which is a rotational program across the different departments of the bank, credit, trade service, business lending. And, you know, so I applied and about, you know, a few months later, while I was still at Chase, I got a call, you know, for an interview. And then I came in as one of the trainees. So that was a really, really great experience for me. And then I became a relationship manager for high net worth clients. So that was, you know, a good entry into, you know, banking. And I did pretty well as a relationship manager looking after high net worth clients. And then, you know, so I did that for about six years in New York before coming to Hong Kong with the bank. Right. I love that role, actually. And a lot of people who are extroverts and people, people tend to end up in relationship management at mm -hmm. banks if they want to work in a bank get those great salary and and so on and all the benefits but be interacting with people all the time and mm -hmm. having high net worth clients is an introduction to the world of wealth and it really changes your perspective about what's possible in your life around money and wealth was that the case for you 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt even to this day, I still have very close relationships with my clients. Everyone said to me, your clients all become your friends. But again, there's that thin line between, you know, client relationship and friendship because, right. you know, they come and they meet with you. A lot of the clients who just moved to the U.S., you're the first point of contact and you get to, you know, to build their relationship with the bank and, you know, and, you know, scale their relationship. So that was definitely a great role. I loved it. I, I you know, a lot of people you leave careers that they hate. But for me, I loved what I was doing. I never hated, you know, my job at all, right. you know, but I felt like after a while, you know, I was doing the same role for six, about six years, but in different markets, I just kept being promoted. So I didn't have to interview for, for any roles. I, I will get tapped on the shoulder. There's another opportunity for a larger branch, you know, so I got moved from Park Slope and Brooklyn to Union Square to the Meatpacking District. So again, you know, just from because I did really well because I connected with the clients. Once you do the right thing for clients, they refer their friends and family to you. So it was really great experience for me. But as I started traveling around the world, I knew it was time for an international career. So that's what inspired me to move abroad. Okay, so did you move from New York to Hong Kong directly? Yes. Through yes. HSBC. Yes. So I applied for the role uh, here and I, once I interviewed and they offered me the role, then I packed up and, and moved to Hong Kong then. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Wow. So what was <laughs> your ending role at the bank? So I was a sales and service manager. So I was looking after the, the expats in Hong Kong. So the, the relationship officers reported to me. So there was a sales team and you know a service team as well. And uh, so we looked after lending, uh, client onboarding, uh, you know, and um, uh, a credit for, for the clients here in Asia. Okay, wonderful. And you were VP at that point that you left. Yes. And you had yes. been at the bank for six years. So I always think about the seven year, or was it six years oh, or more? Well, almost nine with HSBC. So in New York, seven and almost two here in Hong Kong. Okay, so, yeah. so nine years. Wow. Yes. So for me, this this itch to try something new comes around the seven year mark, right? The right. seven year itch is real. I was at right. the Branson Center of Entrepreneurship mm -hmm. for for seven years, and then I got the itch to launch my own thing. So to self actualize, because you know there's mm -hmm. more inside of you that you can express in the world. So tell us about that decision point. So you were in high-paying, high-flying career, VP, HSBC, traveling the world, and then you decided to leave all of that behind. Did you go through any turmoil in the decision? Yes. Like, what was that like? Yeah, so I, at that point, I started thinking of doing, well, I was thinking of doing an MBA since I was back in New York, uh, but when I came to Hong Kong and then I was leading the team, I felt like a lot of the clients would then reach out to me saying, oh, can you be my RM? You know, so I, I missed the client piece, but then I felt like, what else can I do? Because I felt like I just kept going back to the similar roles. And I felt like maybe if I were to do an MBA, that will give me a break to explore different things and then decide where I will land. So I thought of consulting. Um, so I think I started off on a cons consulting track. And then quickly I started chatting with people about the hours, you know, who were working for all of the large, you know, consultancy. And I just thought, you know, this is not for me, you know, and I, I started exploring, maybe I can do internal consulting. So I, just, I, you know, for me, I just felt like, you know, where would I land, you know? And I think the decision to um, to leave. So at this point, I was thinking of doing an executive MBA. I met with the guys at INSEAD. Every time they came to Hong Kong, they would meet with me. And I was thinking of flying to Singapore every six weeks and, you know, continue working and, you know, doing an executive MBA. 
And, you know, and then I met the head of admissions at HKUSC and she said to me, why not do a full time program? And that was very scary for me because I've been working for a very long time. And, you know, it's just me. It's not like I have a partner or I have someone who has, you know, income to to keep things going. So it was very, very scary. And then my, I spoke to my mentor about it when I got into the full time program. I started off as a part time applicant and then I switched my application to a full time program. I just made a decision. You know what? She said to me, when next can you have this opportunity to study full time? And I said, why not? And it was very scary. And when I turned in my resignation, like I said, I was so nervous about it. But my mentor, he said, listen, you've been in banking for 13 years. If you want a job in banking, you could always go back. And I thought about it and I said, OK, why not You know, do it full time? So, so that's what I did. I, I just resigned and decided to study full time. Okay. Wow. All right. So you mentioned a lot of names there. So Anseyad is a big business school based in France, in Fontainebleau, yes. France. Uh, but you were looking at Anseyad and you decided not to go there. You went with Hong Kong, HKU. UST. Yeah, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. So HKUST. Okay. And you did a full-time MBA with HKUST. And yes. you did a summer through that program, a summer in Ghana. Yes. So, um, so you have two options with a full-time MBA. You can either do a 12 months continuously, which was the option I was thinking. I thought, oh, maybe I, I can apply for sabbatical, go back to the bank after a year. But then I thought I wouldn't have the opportunity to have the summer off. So then I decided to do, you know, the 16 month program and have a summer internship. And then I have the opportunity to exchange at another university as well. So this is what I did. So uh, I decided to, I did, everyone was applying for all the banking um, internships. And I felt like I don't want to do this, you know? <laughs> And again, I, I was very, um, you know, I, I just went against what everyone, you know, kept saying, this is what you do when you go into an MBA program, you, you get a job in one of the banks or yeah. one of the consultancy. And I felt like, no. So I reached out to this lady. I was watching CNN African Voices and I saw this lady on the TV and I reached out to her. I sent her a note saying, oh, I would love to work for you. I can help you with business development, business strategy. And, you know, she said, I would love to have you. And I booked a one way flight to Ghana. I ended up not working with her because she got selected for Obama's Young African Leaders program. So she came to DC, but again, I used my network. I had three contacts who are Ghanaian in Hong Kong and they gave me contacts on the continent. And I, I went there and found, you know, three different internships. So Wow. So if I'm to draw themes from what you've done, it's following your gut, taking a mm -hmm. risk to bet on yourself, booking a one-way ticket, having your mm -hmm. plans fall apart, networking your way into new plans that is a real persistent hustle i don't like using that word but that's some real hustle right there some real entrepreneurial energy that you brought to the table uh so i wanted to shift gears a little bit but before i do I want to guess your psychometrics test result, your Myers-Briggs type, because based on what you've said, you sound like an ENFP. Do you know your Myers-Briggs type? No, I don't. <laughs> we did, um, when we started the MBA, we did, um, I don't remember which test, but I, I remember I'm a peacock. Uh, I don't know which one this is. <laughs> well, that one I don't know, but basically uh -huh. you are extroverted, very willing mm -hmm. to reach out, connect, to meet people. Mm -hmm. Um, you are also a P in my book, a perceiver, not a, a not a judger, which means judge J's need structure. They need to 
predictability. They need to know what comes next and what comes next. Whereas peas just thrive in chaos, go with the flow, drop them in Ghana, they'll figure it out. <laughs> yes, right? I've always been this person. And I feel like, you know, just not knowing what's next, I, I've been curious and I just keep going. You yeah. never know who you meet, you never know what connection you'll meet. And, you know, for me, I just. I just love it. I <laughs> right. And then I think you're an F because of how much you thrive on building relationships and connecting with other people. So I'm going to guess you're either an ESFP or an ENFP. I want you to take the free test at 16personalities.com and let me know. Okay. And all of our listeners, this is my domain expertise in guessing <laughs> and also um, analyzing how your personality type affects your career choices. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. Let's bring it back to the present day. So you, after your MBA program, you decided not to go back into full-time work. Is that correct? That so correct. you've been entrepreneur consultant since leaving your MBA program. Amazing. So 2020 <laughs> was a difficult, very challenging year for you. And in our pre-call, you actually told me that you lost everything in the business in 2020. Can we talk about how challenging that was? What happened and how did you look at you smiling and energy today? Like, how did you navigate out of feeling like you lost everything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for me, I'm very optimistic. I felt, you know, obviously when every I lost, well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, I was selected for a runway show. Ghana had the year of return in 2019. Yes. Uh, so there was an official fashion event, uh, Fashion Connect Africa. So my brand um, was selected to, to showcase there. Let's, so let's pause, Audra. So the <laughs> year of return, I remember this because there were a lot of influencers on Instagram that all went to Africa in December of 2019 for this big year of return celebration. So what was that about? Because I didn't get the details. Yeah. On <laughs> so it was an initiative by the Ghanaian uh, government and the tourism board to get people from the diaspora to come back to, to, to Ghana. Mm -hmm. um, it was, um, uh, I guess, four, uh, was it 400 years since, um, you know, slavery when, when, um, uh, when people, when the, when the enslaved people moved from the continent uh, to, to the U.S. and the Caribbean. So they invited uh, uh, the, the diaspora to come back uh, okay. as the year of return. So that's what, that's what it, it was. And so there was an official fashion event and so my brand was selected for that. So I went back. So because of that, I, I had quite a few pop-ups in November. So I had about, I needed to get 70 or so pieces done in a short period of time because I was traveling and I was going to be there for about three or four weeks. So I thought, okay, I need, you know, help to get this done. So someone recommended a new factory. I went there, I vetted the factory, met with them many times. I shipped, you know, fabric to them. And then, you know, they made the, the pieces. I went to Ghana, came back and shortly after, for the rest of the world, COVID hit, you know, in mid March but for us in January you know as soon as I got back everything shut down yeah. so I wasn't able to go back into China but I kept communicating with them I met them here in Hong Kong and mind you again it was a new factory this is my first time doing business with them it was right before I left so because of that we haven't um, the borders um, are closed to foreigners so you can't go back into China um, at the moment so I was communicating with them going back and forth and then in mid-summer Hong Kong our cases were pretty um pretty low and things were reopening and I thought okay let me get the kids collection online let me get things going 
And then I reached out to them and first they said, oh, we're closing the factory. Um, you should come and get your things. And then I said, okay, can you ship them to the previous factory? They received my tags and my labels and you know some of my trimmings and stuff like that, but no fabric. And uh, so again, you know, a few hundred meters of fabric, five rolls of fabric, all gone. Wow. So again, <laughs> it was devastating because I had literally just invested in more fabric in December right before I traveled and then to lose everything. But I, I felt like I have to keep going because, well, again, because I'm so passionate about what I'm doing, I there wasn't an option to give up. There wasn't an option to stop and move on to something else. I felt like, okay, what do I need to do to keep going? So this is what I did. I managed to get, you know, new fabric in. I went back to my previous supplier and then I was able to get things going again. But again, it was very challenging, not having any income coming in. And I managed to, you know, to restart, you know, the brand and get things going again. So. Wow. Wow. So <laughs> basically that factory that closed used your fabric and didn't have any left when you were ready to now take possession of your fabric and you right. had invested a lot it, this is a capital expense right this is to create right. your inventory in your business mm -hmm. so you'd have you invested so much in it and it was all kind of gone wow okay so <laughs> so but then you recovered you started again so what is happening right now in your business in terms of production in terms of sales in terms of customers what's happening now so the funny thing is, once things uh, shut down last year because the factories were closed, I, I started getting orders come in, but I was very transparent. Like I wrote to all of the customers, just let them know the factories were closed because of COVID, but if they're willing to wait, we'll keep the orders in queue. So, you know, so that, you know, gave me some, some revenue to keep going. And like I said, to, you know, to order new factories and keep things going but then um so then i started getting orders from my old previous customers i wasn't advertising I, I made a strategic decision to stop advertising because i felt like while i couldn't fill orders let me not you know advertise for the customer's first experience with the brand to be that we can't fill the orders right so that's one of the reasons why i made a decision not to you know to to um to do marketing but then now you know chinese new year was for about almost a month a lot of you know the factories were closed again this year so that's another reason. So now things are back opening again. And, um, you know, so I do have orders coming in again. So, you know, a lot of my old clients, they will write to me saying, oh, we, when can we order pieces? Are you, do you have fabric back in? You know, one lady, she said, oh, my husband lost his job. We're moving back to, to Italy. But can I have a matching skirt for my daughter before I go? So these are the things that really warm my heart, you know, to know that the customers, despite all of their, you know, turmoil that they're going through, they're still looking out for pieces that make them feel happy that, you know, that's vibrant and, you know, make them, you know, lift their spirits, you know? That's beautiful. And that's wonderful that you have so many loyal clients and that you were advertising first, right? You stopped advertising, but how you got clients in your fashion business, that's one woman doing the whole production line from sourcing right. fabric to interacting with the factory to ship it, you know, bring it yes, into Hong Kong, media. shipping yes. it out, social media ads. <laughs> it's a one woman show from end right. to end. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the front end, the, the pieces that you have, the lines that you have. You mentioned a kid's line. And right. how did you get your first couple clients and how quickly did that grow as well? So tell right. me the whole front end story. Right. So I started off very small. I launched the brand with five pieces. A lot of people feel like, oh, you need a, a huge collection to launch. No, I launched with two dresses, two skirts, um, two dresses, two skirts and, um, and one top. 
right? So that's it. <laughs> that's yeah. it. And I got feedback. What I did, I did a launch event here in Soho in, in Hong Kong. I started getting a lot of feedback. You know, I, I've, I've already, um, uh, I've decided to do the length options because I'm quite tall. I'm 5'9", and finding maxi dresses that are long enough for you has always been a challenge. Not just the length, but even the sizes. In Asia, you know, I will walk into a shop and they will yell at you all the time. It's not your size. You cannot try on, you know? <laughs> so a lot of expats were frustrated by this and you know so they will either travel while they um, shop while they're traveling or shop online so especially for the expat community I got a lot of support you know initially and then they started asking oh can you make pieces for kids and at first I thought absolutely not because especially with the kids they're growing you know I needed to figure out you know options to make the pieces last even longer and then eventually one of my friends in New York said oh can you make something for my niece and I said okay let me try and then it just took off from there and I started again with just a few pieces for the kids and um, and then it just started scaling from there so. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so you said you grew very quickly because when did mm -hmm. you graduate from business school? 2017? 20, when did I go to business school? Uh, no, 2014, 2015. 2015. You graduated 2015 and you became, when did you launch the business? 2018. Okay. So in between that, were you consulting? Because you didn't go back yes. to work, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. So I launched um, a consultancy. And at first, I was doing a bit of sourcing uh, between Asia and, and, and Africa. So I was sourcing, you know, multiple products. Um, but it wasn't as lucrative because I felt like, again, because I'm a one-man show, it was a lot of research. And sometimes, you know, the orders didn't come to fruition. And I just felt like, okay. So that's one of the reasons why I went back and I spent six months traveling across Africa because I felt like I wanted to meet with companies who had the capital and needed someone on the ground to help them in terms of sourcing products from 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 China into Africa so that's what I did between that <laughs> Wow so there are so many pieces to this story so I'm trying to get the timelines right yeah. so you graduated 2015 you had a sourcing so you import and distribution of fabrics from China to Africa is that right no so it wasn't it wasn't a fabric um, I was sourcing lots of different things like uh -huh. I did corporate gifts uh, again because I had so many contacts across the continent I would just get you know um, requested you know just random things like you know someone wanted um, uh, she had a jam company and she needed um, uh, the single-use cups with lids and you know I found a supplier for that someone there was a fintech conference in Kenya I did like the corporate gifts for that so again it's just different wow. yeah <laughs> so real entrepreneur okay so sourcing and distribution from China into Africa for three years and then you launched your own fashion brand because that wasn't lucrative enough. It was a lot of time consumption without enough compensation. So then you launched Perfect. your own brand that you could then create a brand and get great value from the brand. And then you got your clients, you got the fabric, you got the everything produced in China, you started advertising, etc. And you got all these clients leading up to 2020 when everything disappeared. Um, so it, the last question I'm going to ask for, on the business side for from you is is around that client acquisition, which is very difficult for early stage entrepreneurs. So you mentioned you had a launch event and you got feedback, but how did you get clients? And then I think in 2019 you were quite lucrative because you mentioned to me you grew really <laughs> fast in that yes. for those two years. So how did you get those clients? 
So again, just leveraging my network. Everyone say to me, you're the most keeping in touch person ever. So <laughs> I have friends all around the world. And because I keep in touch, I let people know what I'm doing. A lot of entrepreneurs start businesses and then they just, you know, put it online and, you know, hope that you'll get customers. But I definitely leverage my network. Uh, mm. Even like I created, um, I created an advisory board and a lot of the, um, the people who are on my advisory board and my old clients from HSBC or, you know, people I met along the way who believe in the brand and want to, you know, to guide me because they have, ex they're experts in, you know, in different areas that I don't, uh, you know, I don't have, um, you know, those skill set. And I just felt like, why not, you know, get more input in terms of, you know, scaling the brand. So again, so just, I, I use social media, but mostly friends, friends of friends, family of friends, uh, you know, people I meet along the way uh, here in Hong Kong, you know, so I get random orders from like all around the world, like someone ordered in Barbados, someone ordered in Sweden, in, in Australia, and I, so I, I write to every single customer. So that's one of the, um, <laughs> that's one of the things I do. When an order come in, I, I write to the customer to ensure the size is correct, and I start building that relationship from even before I produce the product for them, you know? So again, I, I'm really passionate about service and, you know, uh, you know, delivering exceptional service. Obviously that's what I did in banking, but that's who I am as a person, you know? So I felt like it's, it's because of the service that I provide and I'm filling a gap. A lot of customers who love colorful pieces just can't find them in their size. So, right. you know, it's, it's just scale much faster than I imagine. Wow, wow, wow. What a story, what a career spanning multiple continents from a full-time corporate job, the most corporate of corporate jobs in a bank, right? Into full-time entrepreneurship, never looking back, into losing everything in the business in 2020 and building it back from scratch again. So where do you go from here, Audra? What does the future look like for you? Right. So right now I'm looking to take on a few interns uh, to help me. Uh, right now, um, I, I just uh, signed a contract to distribute my products at a shop here in, in Hong Kong. Uh, I haven't announced Congrats. that yet. Congrats! Yeah. <laughs> <Soul> career exclusive! <laughs> Yeah, so that will come in, in April. Uh, and um, so I'm working on a new collection at the moment and, you know, just working on getting into new markets. So, you know, I, I need to do some more testing to see, obviously, direct-to-consumer is what I've been focusing on so I don't have to have a lot of inventory. But I've actually done some um, improvement to the products to make it last even longer and that would allow me to make more pieces so I'll, I'll announce that in you know in a couple of weeks once i once i have the new collection so that's what i've been working on new collection new print i i've been you know actually i, I was looking for someone from the caribbean to collaborate with on a new design for the print uh and um so if anyone you know out there from the caribbean or from africa you know who would love to collaborate on a print collaborate doesn't mean i will pay you for your services like i mean in terms of you know we come up with you know, a new print that works in terms of the vibrant colors. Uh, so that's what I'm looking to do. So develop a new print, develop a new collection and get some, some help on board to help me scale the brand. Amazing. And we're going to put all your contact information for your brand, your company in the notes to the show. So if you're listening to it on audio, you can go to your podcast player. You'll see how to contact Audra and her company in the notes. If you're on YouTube, same thing in the description. We're going to put all her contact information there so that you can buy her pieces. That print you have on right now is amazing. I love it. I want it. Right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
Thank you. I'll send you some pieces. Yeah. Oh, yes. I will be your (laughs) model. Yes, yes, yes. I will. I want to ask you one last question to close, which is for people who are listening who are interested in designing a multi location life, what are your top three tips for them? Top three tips. Uh, I will say first, you know, travel. So, you know, travel to multiple locations so you can see where where do you love, what places you love. So that's the first thing. Uh, build a network. So it's not just, you know, great to just travel to these places and stay isolated in, you know, tourist attractions or like in, you know, fancy hotels. For me, it's, you know, getting to know the local people, connecting with them and, you know, building that relationship this you know, whether you're there or you've moved on, you, you maintain that uh, the relationship. And then uh, three, I would say just start, start small. You know, you don't need to have all the pieces, but you know, again, if you leverage your network, you'll find enough people who are willing to help you along the way. And um, I think that's the three tips I, w- I would give. So, you know, yeah, so start small, you know, travel and then, you know, maintain your relationships around the globe. I love that. I especially love the piece about don't just isolate yourself when you travel Mm -hmm. in a fancy resort. Get out there, meet people, go on LinkedIn ahead of time, see who you want to connect with, set up meetings when you're there and keep and develop those relationships because that's where the opportunity is. The opportunity, especially if you want to become an entrepreneur, but even if you maintain your full-time career, the opportunity comes from your network. So There's one piece of it that's building the network. And then there's another piece of it that is using and leveraging your network to get results. And you do both of those things very, very well, Audra. Thank you you so much for being on this episode of the podcast. You are like the most interesting woman in the world, maybe one of them. (laughs) So interesting, so compelling, so just living so much life. You are an example of living, right? And I'm so inspired by your story and I'm sure our audience is as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. If you love this episode, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a review. And if you're a professional, executive, or entrepreneur that's interested in taking one of our coaching programs, head on over to soulcareer.com and sign up for a free consultation. We would love to hear from you.